are starting a new series here at Spark. Um, we're focusing on Matthew 25, and we are talking about sheep and goats. That's the next thing that's normal. We're going to learn all about the differences between sheep and goats. No, that's not true. Let's read Matthew chapter 25 and hear Jesus' teachings here, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Son of Man, by the way, is just a fancy word Jesus is referring to himself, fancy phrase, um, when this guy, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Everybody here on this side, so sorry. All of you, you're very good sheep over here. You're doing great. Uh, then the king will say to those on his right, well done, uh, you come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, I never knew you, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, let's talk about sheep and goats. In Jesus' day, these are images that are very common, right? Lots of people had small flocks. Even if you weren't a shepherd out with your flocks there, you used sheep and goats for all of the good, important things. Goat hair, deeply important for things like tents. Um, if, you had, if you've ever seen a Bedouin tent out there, goat hair and camel hair were used for all of those things. Uh, wool from the sheep used for clothing. A lot of times when we think about how uh, like droughts worked in the ancient world or if people didn't have enough water or pasture were like, oh, then they didn't have maybe milk or yogurt or they didn't have meat, but actually they also didn't have clothes or shelter then because these animals provided all of those things. Now, if you've ever hung out with sheep, uh, they are not very bright. Anybody? Um, they just kind of follow the sheep butt directly in front of them, and they do the thing that is being done in front of them. And in fact, there's stories about sheep just wandering directly off a cliff. If the shepherd's not in front, if one sheep goes, then the others just keep going, like without sort of thinking. So it's interesting that in this analogy, the sheep are the ones doing the right thing, but at least we know that the sheep are the ones that imitate behavior. And we've seen through a lot of our teachings that Jesus has already fed the hungry, given the thirsty something to drink, you know, clothed those who are unclothed, all of that. So the sheep are the ones who can imitate the behavior. The goats are the ones that are like, 
I did it my way. They sing the Frank Sinatra song. They're not gonna follow the sheep butt directly in front. They're like, I wanna be a goat. I wanna find my own path. I wanna be up high on the hill. I wanna do all my own thing. And goats can also eat anything and like somehow not die, right? Like it can eat garbage and all of that, whereas the sheep need to be taken to the right place and really shepherded. And a lot of flocks are naturally mixed, but there would be times when it would make sense to separate the sheep out from the goats for whatever variety of reason. That's the image Jesus is pulling in here. Now, a lot of times when people want to sit and talk about this passage, and we're going to talk about it for the next few weeks, and some of the different spark teachers are going to come on in and they have some ideas about different aspects of this verse. But a lot of times when people talk about it, they want to go straight to Jesus is talking about condemning everybody to hell forever, uh, or at least, you know, half the population. And there's, and do we earn salvation? And we do those different things. And we get kind of wound up in who are the sheep and the goats? Could we assign people? Like, are those definitely a certain political party, right? You'd go, okay, that's definitely a goat, or that's a sheep. Or particular people groups, or there's people who go, well, it's that Israel are the sheep, and the nations are the goats. Or it's, no, that Jesus' followers are the sheep, and other people who reject Jesus are the goats. And everyone gets real wrangled up real quick. And when is this going to happen? And then the righteous didn't know. And so does that mean that it happened at the beginning when Jesus comes back again? Or is it after the tribulation? And then Jesus, I mean, people get really worked up about all of these details. And I'd like to suggest that we should probably, I'm just saying, focus on the thing that seems very clear that we know for sure, feed hungry people give thirsty people something to drink. Let's just focus on the quick little, I mean, what, maybe there'll be time to, you guys can negotiate out all those other details that were, will be good guesses no matter what, but let's focus on thing we know for sure. Genesis chapter 18. Do you guys remember this story? Abraham is out in the heat of the day. He's sitting in his tent, in his open tent in the heat of the day. He's just had some surgery some gentlemen might consider it major. And he has just had some surgery um, to participate in the covenant with God. And he's sitting out in the heat of the day and he sees three visitors from a long way off. He jumps up, gathers up his robes and runs and welcomes them. He's like, you know, get all the good meat, get all the good flour, let's welcome them in. From this story, people started to say, ah, do you know that we're supposed to visit the sick? How do you get that from the story? Well, Abraham had just had surgery and God came and visited Abraham. So that's the commandment, visit the sick, the rabbis would say. Ah, did you know that you're supposed to welcome strangers? Because that's what Abraham does. And he welcomes strangers. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews author will say, hey, be careful, make sure you to welcome strangers because some people, Abraham and Sarah, have welcomed angels unaware when they've done so. These three angelic visitors who come in, Abraham welcomes them in. This idea of feeding the hungry, taking care of the thirsty, welcoming in the stranger, visiting the sick, is all present in this story. This is not something new Jesus made up in Matthew 25. This is good commentary on the text. Isaiah 56 will also say something similar. He says, is this, is not this the fast that I choose, God says to Israel through Isaiah, to loose the balance of injustice, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Like basic instructions on how to be a decent human being in the world. Give the hungry something to eat, clothe the naked, give the thirsty something to drink, welcome in the stranger. 
Basic instructions Jesus comments on. Proverbs has another one. I mean, we could go on all day with all this, by the way. Uh, but Proverbs 14, 31 through 32 has this fun little parallel, poetic parallel. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker. But those who are kind to the needy honor him. Isn't that just fascinating commentary? You can hear the resonance of Jesus in Matthew 25. And here's the parallel. The wicked are overthrown by their evil doing, but the righteous find a refuge in their integrity. You wicked who don't do the good and who've actually abstained from the good and instead done the evil, you will be overthrown by that. That's going to come back to get you. And then we have images throughout the Gospels too, or actually even through another psalm. For the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. We have God saying, I am the shepherd, and I will take care of you. So if we're looking at sheep and goats, and we're trying to figure out who the shepherd is in this, then Jesus is the shepherd, or God is the shepherd, the king is the shepherd, and can take care of the flock. And how does the good shepherd do this? Gives you enough to eat, gives you a safe place to drink, and cares for you. And then Jesus will say, I'm the good shepherd. Yes, God is the good shepherd, but so am I. I'm the good shepherd. And if you want to be my followers, then you need to be good shepherds too. And when we talked about this in our Peter series recently, we talked about how Peter moves from fisherman to shepherd, not actually in vocation, right? but in his picture of how he's going to take care of God's people. And even as Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's a story about what? It's a story about stopping, seeing somebody in need, and making sure that they're cared for. There's a lot more to it in a while, and we can unpack all of that. But basic, A to B, is if you see somebody in need, stop, help them, don't keep walking. Make sure to take care of them. Jesus' brother James will actually say that if you don't do this, your faith is dead. James chapter 2. What good is it? Why is it happening so fast? Slow down. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Surely that faith cannot save, can it? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you don't supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? In fact, I'd say it's actually harmful, isn't it? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say to you, will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will, and I by my works will show you my faith. So Jesus' brother James says, like, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you can't walk by and just say, good luck. You have to stop and do it. And if you don't do it, then it's not faith. Because faith is not something, just an intellectual belief that we ascribe to. It is that belief placed into action. So let's look again then at what Jesus is asking us to do. He's asking us to do some very basic things in this world. Feed the hungry, give the thirsty something to drink, clothe the naked, visit the sick, and visit those in prison. And isn't this how you would want to be treated? And notice how in all of these instances, there's not any shame expected. There's only shame if we don't do it. Not shame to be expected to be felt by the person who's in need of food or water or of clothing or of healing or of justice. Any shame or shame feelings that should be had should be had on the part of those of us who don't act. 
These actions, these basic actions, human, hum, humane, humanitarian ways of caring for another, are referred to in the Talmudic writings, the early writings just after the time of Jesus um, in the Jewish text, as acts of loving kindness. These are acts of chesed, of loving kindness. And he says, they said, God will judge us based on how we treated the vulnerable, disenfranchised, and downtrodden among us. Feeding the hungry, satiating the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the sick and the imprisoned are all examples of what the rabbis called acts of loving kindness. The sages regarded acts of loving kindness as higher than all the sacrifices you can make at the temple and more meritorious than all of the commandments. Like the Samaritan in the parable of Good Samaritan, those who practice acts of loving kindness live out the Bible's commandment of loving one's neighbor as oneself. In fact, the Talmud further establishes chesed as one of the core pillars, that ever-loving grace, like kindness, covenantal loving kindness, chesed, as one of the core pillars of human behavior. So in the early writings, the sayings of the fathers, per vote, the rabbi said that the world actually rests upon three things, the Torah, the teachings or the law, the first five books of Moses, avodah, which means work or service, and gemulut chasidim, acts of loving kindness, that that's how the world exists. Isn't that interesting? This is sort of around in the time of Jesus and just after, that the world exists based upon these commandments and based upon our service and our work to God and based upon these acts of loving kindness. And chesed, these loving kindness is laid out as the broadest value because it can be done not only with money. You don't need to be rich to go visit somebody who's sick. You don't need to be rich to welcome someone. You don't need to be rich to go visit somebody in prison. It can be given to the rich and the poor and the living and the dead. And by the way, not just poor people are in these situations, are they? There are plenty of rich people in prison too. Plenty of rich people who are sick too. All are in need of this act of loving kindness. In the Catholic faith, they talk about these as the corporal works of mercy. These are like regular understandings of things that you do if you are a follower of Jesus. You're going to start feeding people, giving people something to drink, visiting the poor, taking care of the sick, all of that. These are the works you'll do. If anyone's been in any sort of Catholic community, particularly the, the charitable arms, uh, the Jesuit expression of the Catholic faith, and others, there's just a lot of people out there working, doing a lot of good. And when you go out into the world and you're trying to figure out who's helping the millions of people who are living with food scarcity right now in the Horn of Africa, do you know who you find there? find a lot of Jesuits. You also find a lot of evangelicals, by the way. As much as any one of us might want to vote them off the island any given moment, I'm just letting you know, there's a lot of people out there feeding the hungry. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, William, Reverend William Barber, but he's of the Poor People's Campaign. And he's had national call for moral revival. And he says this, some folks hijacked Christianity and decided that they were gonna put up a lot of money to promote the idea that to be a person of faith was to be anti-choice, anti-gay, pro-gun, pro-tax, pro-tax cut. But it's theological malpractice. That is not what makes anybody a Christian. In fact, Nicholas Kristof said that the liberal caricature of evangelicals is also incomplete and unfair. I have little in common politically or theologically with evangelicals, but I've been truly awed by those I've seen in so many remote places combating illiteracy and warlords, famine and disease, humbly struggling to do the Lord's work as they see it, and it's offensive to see good people derided. In both, and how we talk about Christianity, how we talk about people of faith out in these spaces, we would do well to be very careful what we say 
because there are a lot of people out there actually doing a lot of great good. People you might disagree with, but in the end, they're feeding somebody who's hungry with no strings attached, actually, and doing some good. Nicholas Kristof, if you followed his journey at all, he's always amazed as he goes to these very difficult parts of the world to find, as he gets there, a group of Christians already trying to give some people some water. They're trying to make a difference. And as we talk about this way of Jesus, and as we talk about how at Spark we're trying to inspire people to the way of Jesus, I want to let you know that I'm fully convinced that a church without this way of Jesus, without a group of people following these commands, a world without people trying to follow this way of Jesus will be poorer. And I think what I love so much about this passage as we kind of push into it over these next few weeks and consider it is that Jesus identifies himself with the least of these. He's saying constantly, if you didn't do it for them, then you didn't do it for me because I stand with the marginalized, with the oppressed, with the hungry, with the thirsty, with those who are in need of clothing and shelter, with those who are considered strangers and not lent. I stand with them. I love how as you read this passage and teaching of Jesus, there is no footnote, no asterisks, no conditions apply. You should feed the hungry as long as they tried really hard to get a job this week. You should feed the hungry as long as they've already hit all the food pantries. You should make sure that the thirsty can have something to drink as long as they have the appropriate documentation as they pass over the border. You should make sure that you welcome the stranger in as long as you're sure you're safe, as long as you're sure they're safe, as long as you're sure you're comfortable, as long as sure it doesn't you know, bother you with like the dinner hour. Are we so anxious to welcome in those who are on the outside that we would run down the street and say, please come, please come. When I was a kid, we moved to a new neighborhood and I think I was like three, maybe about three years old and my parents were unpacking and they're busy, right? And so I started walking around the neighborhood and I started inviting everybody in the neighborhood that I met to spaghetti dinner that night at my house. <laughs> now, they had not yet unpacked a dish. And they're kind of, hey, Danielle invited us to Paschetti dinner tonight at our house. But no, I'm sorry, that's not happening. But I have joked for a long time that I was born with this gift of invitation. I get super excited to invite people places and to come over to the house and play. But I'm going to fully admit that as my life has gotten busier and actually with COVID and all the other things, that it became a lot easier just to stay at home and to not invite in anymore. It's just, sometimes it's complicated, isn't it? The good thing is you can just invite them to here and then nobody will know where you live. Just invite them to Spark and you'll have come just joking. Bring them on in. We'll have a good time. Whatever it is, you don't get to say, I don't get to say that today I'm only going to love or welcome or care for certain people that I agree with, that I align myself with. There's no footnote. There's no asterisk. There's no conditions that apply. Jesus' commands are clear. Love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Feed the hungry. Take care of the people in need. Father Gregory Boyle, for those of you who, of Homeboy Ministries, those of you who really deeply appreciate his work, he's going to be here at Spark in April. Woohoo! I know, I just saw a whole bunch of people get really excited. Um, and he says this, that when you start getting into the mix of this, like who do we like, who do we align ourselves with, what group of Christians are doing it the correct way, how do we find ourselves, right and left aren't so helpful here. The more reverent we become, we see things not as black and white, left or right, but as complex. 
You guys, we don't have to get all wound up with who gets it and who doesn't. It's just very, very simple. If somebody's hungry, give them something to eat. It might be you that's hungry. We'll give you something to eat. The reason why all of this is so deeply important is because when you read in Matthew 25, nobody is actually being hoovered up to some golden amusement park in the sky. This is a kingdom experience right here, right now. The kingdom is here. And as you read even the parables that are coming up before this, and then Jesus is teaching here, it sounds like Jesus goes away, and then Jesus comes back, and Jesus is looking, and Jesus is saying, hey, what have you been doing since I've been gone? And have you been caring for the people in my kingdom? Because I need some help. We have that uh, Jesus is coming look busy, right? My, my priest friend who has this t-shirt and wears it a lot. But I think I like this a bit and I don't have to worry so much about who's getting in or who's getting out. I'm just gonna make sure that I'm the one and you're the one and Spark is the place where in the name of Jesus, we're offering somebody something to drink and we're making sure everybody's welcome. Now, I know when we think about the needs and these commands and all that can feel overwhelming. And we can also get stuck a lot with systemic injustices. And we'll talk about those things like, okay, I want to go and visit the person in prison, but can I also tackle the fact that there's systemic injustice in our incarceration system and we need to be tackling that, right? There's systemic racial injustice. We need to be tackling that. We should be talking about food scarcity and poverty alleviation and all of the things that, yes, absolutely, 100%. But don't let yourself get so overwhelmed in the nitty-gritty details of all that that you forget just to grab a cup of water and hand it. Because there's something so soul-saving in being able to receive a glass of water from somebody or to extend that to another person. I get very overwhelmed when I think of the climate. Anybody else? Like, we start to look at the news and you think, oh, no, I can't look at that at all, or I'm going to get fully angsty, or I'll just turn it all off. And I would just like to ask whether it's climate action, as we talked today earlier with Lasso Loop, or whether it's something very specific in all the things we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks and Sparks Rescue efforts with refugee resettlement or poverty alleviation or racial justice and all of that. Just find what brings you joy. Ask yourself what you're good at and what needs doing, and that's your action. It doesn't need to get super complicated. I'm going to trust that Christ in you, the hope of glory, that Jesus has created you exactly as Jesus wants you to be and is drawing you to some good action in this world that you can extend in the name of Jesus and love people in the name of Christ. The other thing that happens when we get into these spaces is we think, but I can't do it all. There's 16 gajillion more people who are thirsty. It's like some sort of scene at the end of a movie, right? Where you just can't take care of them all. What are you going to do? The Talmud helps us here, Jewish writings again. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now, Micah 6.8. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. You guys, you don't have to do it all. I don't have to do it all, but I don't get to give up either. So we'll do our little bit in part. We're going to continue to think more on Matthew 25 and Jesus' teachings in the coming week, um, in the coming weeks as we are moving towards our 11th anniversary here at Spark and celebration and party. So uh, my encouragement to you all as we have the team come on up and get us ready to turn our hearts towards communion. Open up this passage, read through it, memorize it, think on it. Think what brings you joy in those moments and what you and I might be called to do. Dream big. Come talk to us here at Sparks. I'd like to do this. We 
can find all of ways. Talk to Debbie. She's got so many great ideas. All of those beautiful ways where we can start to be the hands and feet of Jesus to one another for our own sakes and for the sake of the world. We're now going to turn our attention to the table where all who are hungry can come and eat and where all who are thirsty can come and drink because the table's been prepared for us. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Everyone, this is not our table. This is not our bread or our wine. It is Christ, the Lord's table. And all are welcome here. All are welcome at this table.